This episode of Profiles and Risk is sponsored by IAPATH. IAPATH, unlocking your adjusting superpowers. Go to IAPATH.com. This is Profiles in Risk. Hosted by Nick Lamparelli. Every week, we interview those who risk life, limb, fortunes, career, and reputation, and those who work behind the scenes who look to protect and enlighten us about risk. You can find the show notes and other insurance-related content at insnerds.com. That's I-N-S-N-E-R-D-S dot com. Now, on to the show. I'm at the InsureTech Rising conference in Boston, and I am with... Anita Aspel from IDA Ireland. And what is IDA Ireland? And let's go into the the benefits of Ireland for insurance companies. Okay, so IDA Ireland, first of all, is the uh, is a government agency, and we're tasked with encouraging foreign direct investment uh, from multinational companies to come to Ireland. We've been very successful to date, um, specifically around technology companies and with the insurance industry. So we figured that the two coming together, we're, we're seeing a lot of success in the growth in that sector. Um, one of the reasons, I suppose, people choose to come to Ireland or companies come to Ireland is um, it's a mix between kind of you know the 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 base of companies that are already here, which encourage uh, the, you know very strong talent pool of, of in both sectors. Um, our Irish government has been in this space for you know 50, 60 years. Uh, we've built an entire ecosystem around a company, you know, working to uh, encourage uh, multinational companies to come to Ireland, and we've been very successful in doing that. Is there anything specific about the insurance space that makes Ireland also attractive? Well, it's it's, re- it's really around it's really around talent. You know, we have a very very strong education system. Um, Ireland is a launchpad into Europe, so we're not talking about companies looking to service the Irish marketplace. We're looking these companies are coming over to Ireland. They're accessing the European market of 450 uh, million consumers and customers. And they're able to leverage the Irish education system. We have a lot of uh, talent that actually comes directly from Europe into Ireland, as well as our own Irish domestic base. And we have, in terms of the kind of you know very attractive uh, you know tax system, we've got a very attractive research and development um, ecosystem here as well. We've got a lot of tax credits that companies can leverage. So yeah, all in all, I think it's a you know it's 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 a very interesting package for companies to look at. So any chance of Ireland leaving the European Union? Not a chance. Not a chance at all. In fact, Ireland, in terms of they were doing an EU study, and Ireland came out as the very very top in terms of the uh, sentiment. Uh, toward EU. The Irish people are very happy to part of the EU and we've seen the benefit of a small open economy like Ireland um, has really just had you know, very, very positive benefits from being part of the EU and we don't plan to change that. And how long is the flight from Dublin to Boston? Six hours. Okay, so yeah. easier than the rest of Europe? A lot of easier. We've got the, we've got the English speaking, we've got a similar legal system to the US, we've got very close cultural connections. You know, it's a win-win, and we find that a lot of a lot of uh, U.S. companies have uh, have already copped onto that. So, so it's open for business. So the big question for me: Does it does it snow in Dublin? Do you know it snowed for the first time in a few years in Dublin this year? We got the best snow we've had since 1982. 
and um, it was it was amazing. But unfortunately, we don't get it on a regular basis. We've got a very temperate, mild climate. So how, how are you finding Boston? I love Boston. Boston is an amazing city, and so nice to get a, a blast of sunshine. And uh, no, it's very friendly. We're loving it. A lot of Irish here. A lot of Irish. Very very welcoming. They love our accents over here. So. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. Thank you so much. Thanks a million. Back at InsureTech Rising in Boston, 2018, and what's your name? Brent Williams. And what do you do? Who do you represent? So I'm the founder and CEO of Benakiva. We're a life insurance platform to process claims, deal with unclaimed property law and compliance, and uh, certify, update, notify beneficiaries. We we took that 258-year-old claims process and digitized it. So I'm trying to think of the claims process and life insurance. <laughs> in in my mind, it seems pretty straightforward. Uh-huh. Something really bad happens, and you just gotta show them a piece of paper. Talk about a little bit about like what's what some of the choke points are mm-hmm. that you try to solve. Well, it's interesting. I was I was an advisor at a large life insurance company for 12 years, one of their top uh, producers, and. The claims process is always uh, just a just a tough process to go through, especially if you're doing that by yourself. It's a tough process to go through even if you do it with an advisor, but it's an extremely tough process if you're doing it by yourself. So one of the things that I decided to do was solve that problem and make it a much more easier, seam- streamlined process. So for example, yeah, okay, good. so for example, let, let's say you file a claim at life insurance company A today. You call in and say, I have to file a claim. They're going to direct you to their website where you download a non-fillable PDF, right? And you handwrite in the... I know where you're going with this. (laughs) Right? And then you either mail it or scan and email it in. Seven to ten days later, you get a 10 to 12 page death packet in the mail that it looks like you need an attorney to fill out. Right? So what we did was we took that entire process and digitized it and send the beneficiary all pre-filled forms. So they don't have to worry about trying to fill this out or trying to fill that out correctly. It's it's a very easy process. So I always thought you just needed to get like a death notice. <laughs> no. So you're just like laughing at me. Yeah. <laughs> it's much more complicated than that. It is. Yeah. It's so wh- why would it be? Why why so many steps? Why so much paperwork? Mm-hmm. When it's pretty cut and dry, it's kind of binary, right? It either happened or it didn't happen. Uh-huh. So why all the paperwork? Well, I mean, life insurance companies want to pay claims, the good ones anyway. They want to pay claims. The problem is, is their claims process isn't a revenue generation process. So that process, it's been that way for 258 years, and it stayed that way because it works. I mean, it's, yeah. So it's an old process. We know we need to fix it, but it's a back burner item. We'll get to it when we get to it. And what we're saying is, is you could take that claims process and create a revenue driver out of that. So that's where our Benny Certify comes in. We take that claims process, and if your company has advisors or uh, licensed representatives, we loop them into the claims process now. So now you, that advisor now has a, a chance to replace a deceased client with a new client, retain any assets instead of them going to the bank, right? And potentially sell products and services to the beneficiary that they probably need. So, so ad- advising them mm-hmm. what to do with the, the, the proceeds. Correct. Yep. Wow. I didn't know it was that complicated. <laughs> I, I'm 
Well, we haven't even talked about the compliance piece. Well, let's talk about the <laughs> compliance piece. So, uh, again, I'm I'm thoroughly confused because it would seem like it's pretty straightforward. It's a binary process. Where's the where's the choke point here? So there are, there are what they call unclaimed property and achievement laws now. Uh, each individual state has their own uh, version of that law or interpretation of that law. So if a person doesn't file a claim on a life insurance policy, in the old days that policy just sat on the books. Okay. Well, new unclaimed property laws have made it to where if the insurance company doesn't file or someone doesn't file a claim on that, now they have to escheat those funds over to the individual states, right? So from an insurance company perspective, it used to be we didn't necessarily, I mean, it's not that we don't care that somebody doesn't file a claim, but it, is, it isn't on our radar. If someone files a claim, we'll pay the claim. That's what we're contracted to do, right? But if they don't, well, then it just sat on our books. Well, then unclaimed property laws came in and said, no, 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 you can't let this sit on your books. If someone doesn't file a claim and process, you don't process a claim on this policy within a certain amount of time frame, you have to cheat that money over to the states now, right? So now there's a whole unclaimed property law and achievement process that every life insurance company has to deal with. Oh, and by the way, there's 52 different versions of it. Shocker. <laughs> so we built that into our platform to where they can comply with unclaimed property and achievement laws through one platform. So now they can process claims, they can create their claim system and, and make it be a, a revenue generation portion of the business as opposed to just an expense. We can reduce the expenses on the claims by 25 to 30% pretty easily. And we also help them comply with unclaimed property laws. We notify and update beneficiaries. So life insurance companies, this is a this is amazing. You would you would not believe how many life insurance companies pay ex-spouses. Right? Because the contract says we pay this beneficiary. But what happened was is that person got divorced. The policyholder never updated the beneficiary. So when a claim comes in, guess who gets the money? The ex spouse of fifteen years. Right? Now, from a from a user experience perspective, who do you think the new spouse is mad at? The life insurance company. <laughs> exactly. Even though it's not the life insurance company's problem. It, it wasn't the life insurance company's fault that the beneficiary isn't updated, right? So we take we take that step and, and there's over fourteen billion dollars of unclaimed life insurance policy right now in the United States. Right? That's policies that are sitting out there waiting to be claimed. Why did those policies not get claimed? I would guess someone died and they didn't have family, so they didn't even know the life insurance policy existed. Here's a personal story. So one of our co-founders, Jason, he was literally at his father's funeral shaking hands. And a gentleman walks up to him and says, hey, Jason, by the way, sorry for your loss, but if you need help with the paperwork, let me know. And Jason says, what paperwork? He said, well, your father had a life insurance policy through the state of Alabama. Had that 10-second conversation not occurred, that policy would have never been claimed, ever. So that's why we have Benny Notify. Well, this was karma because <laughs> now I, I remember that someone, my niece told me that my name popped up on one of those state lists. Yeah. <laughs> I have a couple of small bank accounts yeah. uh, for, you know, 10 or $15. Mm -hmm. So it was karma that we met. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Back at InsureTech Rising in Boston, and what is your name? I'm Shruti Rao. 
And who are you with? Uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Ready. It's an early stage insurtech startup. What does what problem does Adapt Ready? Adapt Ready? Yeah. Adapt Ready. What problem do you solve? So, if you look at what's happening in the insurtech space, there's been, especially 2017, has been a year of major disasters, particularly in America. But what's interesting when you look at that is the insured losses, although it was 270 billion, uh, the uninsured losses were like more than 600 billion, meaning the gap between insured and uninsured is 340 billion. But if you look at what's happening from the insurer side, they're fighting for the same clients and the same margins. And this 340 billion in gap is a missed opportunity for anyone in the business of managing risks. It's an underserved market. Exactly. No competition. Exactly. I'm talking right up my alley. I, I, it's a huge focus of mine as well. So for Adapt Ready, is there anything in particular in that protection gap that you're specifically focusing on? Yeah, so the reason insurers are not able to tap into this is lack of high quality and relevant data. And that's what we bring to the table. So we have built risk intelligence platform that can harness and optimize external data like it has never done before. So we are focused mainly on the commercial lines and addressing some of the large corporate uh, business insurance angle, but we also have uh, products for SME. Uh, so we bridge the gap uh, between what I mean, the gap uh, in terms of the lack of data from the customer angle. And what we bring to the table is like this jigsaw puzzle fit uh, that gives insurer a much more complete picture for what they have and what we can bring. And then uh, we identify which are the risk exposures and also give a risk score. So, so it's, it's applying data. Supplying data? Yeah. So curating it, supplying it to the insurance industry, but then also uh, assisting them, guiding them in terms of uh, what they, in terms of risk appetite or what they may or may not want to underwrite. Absolutely, yeah. So it, it has uh, many different, I mean, it brings value proposition to many different aspects. One of the key, I mean, of course, underwriting, helping with pricing, premiums, right? But one of the key ways uh, it's been used today by insurers is it's been used as a strategic sales tool. So, so far, insurers have been more reactive that they get the business, they look at, and they analyze the risk. Um, so this platform can help them be proactive and win new business. Uh, geography? Uh, we are a global product. So. Okay. So if someone wanted to perhaps tackle Thai flood, you would know how to get that data? Uh, you have to be a bit more specific okay. in terms of Thai flood. What we can do is um, imagine a large corporate, right? Okay. We can gather quite a lot of, let's say an insurer wants to insure uh, say like a pharma company so we are able to gather quite a lot of information about the pharma company and look at how the supply chain is and so on um, and how the risks are spread out we give them a lot more information so when insurers um, couple their information or their data with us they can see which parts are insured 
and which are the remaining parts. So they can use this and sell this, uh, go to their uh, pharma company and say, okay, this is how your risk exposure looks like. These are the areas that you can take a cover for. So these are the insurance products we have and either renew or upsell. How old is Adapt Ready? We are um, early stage, uh, two plus years, but we have been focused on the insurance since um, early 2017, and we have had some really good uh, early successes. That is, we won two awards. One was the Risk Modeling Technology of the Year Award uh, by Insurance Times um, against RMS and AI Worldwide, wow, okay. as well as uh, Excellence in Technology Service Provider Award, and one recent last month for the Best Customer Service Product for Business. Uh, Fantastic. Uh, Fantastic. <laughs> uh, you know that a two-year-old insurtech company is now considered seasoned? Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> okay, now It's not early stage anymore. Okay, we are a seasoned insurtech company. There you go. You've, you've graduated. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll get right back to this podcast right after a short message from our sponsor. I'm here with Chris Stanley, founder of IAPath. So, Chris, what is IAPath and why did you start it? Well, Nick, I started IAPath because a friend of mine wanted to get into the industry and couldn't find anything online about how to become an independent auto damage appraiser. And I just thought that was crazy and kind of unacceptable. So I decided I wanted to make it easier to be and become an independent appraiser and adjuster by providing people with information, inspiration, and eventually certification. From the beginning, it was important to me that I'd be a real human being that people could connect to. Yet, I dreamed it would become an organization that was big enough to make a difference. So what is IA Path? We're here to give people a clear-cut path to becoming an IA. Thus the name, IA Path. IA Path. Unlocking your adjusting superpowers. Go to IAPath.com. Back at the, I always I get all of these conferences. Yeah, InsureTech Rising. There's too many InsureTech conferences. And what is your name? Harish. And what is your name? Graham. And you are with DataCuse. Could you tell me what is DataCuse? So we are a roughly two and a half year old startup. And so seasoned. Seasoned veterans. <laughs> uh, not a startup anymore. Yeah, not a startup anymore, I guess. Um, so we focus exclusively on underwriting commercial PNC risk. Um, we have a very simple vision, which is essentially we want to help insurance company underwrite commercial risk by just knowing the name and address of the, the risk itself, right? Um, so none of the paperwork and none of the data crunching that they do today. Uh, you should go from name and address to quote, and everything else behind the scenes is what we enable. Okay, spill the guts. How do you do that? Uh -huh, so um, a lot of hard work. Uh, so essentially the Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere hidden in our basement. No, so I, I, our hypothesis, right? In this day and age, there is enough information about businesses um, that's available in the public domain. Either things you can license and buy or things you can acquire from open data sources, right? Where you can actually answer the underwriting questions by building models off of that external data set, right? So a simple question like what is the nature of a business a company does. Um, as an underwriter, you could visit datacubes.com 
and understand we're a software company that uses SaaS model to sell to insurance companies. Clean that up. Yeah, keep going? Yes. Okay. So if you were to scrape the website, right, like crawl our website, you can get the text data that an underwriter reads to make that determination that we are a software company. We can also scrape the website and teach the machine what to look for to decide we are a software company. So that's the essential logic is accumulate enough information about businesses in the US and then build models on top of it so that you can answer underwriting questions. How skeptical are PNC companies when they hear a pitch that we need minimal amounts of information we can supply you back a ton? I don't know that anybody's skeptical right now. I think the hardest thing that we have to overcome is somebody trying to put us in a box of just a data provider or as they're conceptually trying to understand what the solution does, only keying on the one of maybe three or four things that the product can do. Um, I think insurers now are looking for ways to automate and have underwriters spend less time doing it themselves. So I don't see a whole lot of, I don't really believe you can do it. How, how, is it, how has it been when you work with your carriers to actually get the underwriters to go through, or the actuaries, or whoever is responsible for embedding these, to actually use it. It's been experience of mine that you know carriers are very willing, they're eager, and but then the product comes in and it kind of, I wouldn't say it sits on a shelf, but they're not exactly sure how to implement that. How how much uh, massaging do you have to do to them to get them comfortable with it, but also to kind of nudge them to get them to use it? Yes, yeah, so adoption um, is, is generally going to be hard, right, for an industry that has done the business the same way for a while. Um, but as Graham said, right, um, there is a burning platform to improve the process today, right? Um, as underwriters change in terms of both demographic and their interest, uh, carriers themselves are looking for a new and better way to attract talent. Um, you know, rather than the old ways of exchanging forms with brokers and doing it the old-fashioned way, they're trying to figure out how can you put a platform that excites a newer crop of underwriters, right? So that's one burning platform they have. The second one is a, a lot of the segments of the business, like small business, um, there is enough of a push to go towards where there's straight-through processing, for example, right? Where there's minimal input and minimal uh, back office process and you get a quote out of the window, right? So in those two instances, I think there's enough awareness that we don't have to do a lot of pushing, right? And and at, at the end of the day, I believe adoption still happens because the product works. So we spend most of our energy in trying to make sure that the product works for the underwriter, right? And then that's what's helped us quite a bit. Um, and we are less like spending time on selling AI or NLP or ML or any of those fancy words. We spend most of our time educating the companies about what it is that we change about the underwriting flow itself. Are there any particular lines that are that you find your product gets more traction with versus others? I think uh, so. It's more of our design than the market. Um, the demands across lines of business, but we have gone live with comp and general liability and property um, because those are where the models are. So I wouldn't, I haven't seen a bias in the market though. Like there is a lot of interest for financial lines, for example. Carriers are always hitting us saying, can you do a DNO, ENO or EPL, right? Like I think the demand's there, 
um, I think we have to build those models and be able to monetize that. You take a lot of effort, not just in, in building your own models, in having teams that can give the go. Like it, it's it's already been vetted in a way. Basically, you just have to you have to tie either claims data or something that's very specific to the company to actually make it work. Yeah. So we have an underwriter, um, somebody who knows under, underwriting on on staff, who's looking at data and then building the training data sets that the machine should go off, right? They will actually read a building permit and say, does that mean the contractor did plumbing or did they do roofing work? And that's how you build the training data set. So when the carrier is receiving it, we have already built something out of the box that they can use, and it's not a raw data dump, right? Like, so that's, um, so that's not possible with some of the lines we haven't worked on, and that's how we think about it. So thank you. No worries. Thank you. Back at InsureTech Rising in Boston, what's your name? Hi, I'm Jim Bowen with Energetic Insurance. What is Energetic Insurance? Is that like insurance for people that run too much? Um, that would be cool. We have to look into that. But, uh, you know, we, we came up with a name because we are working in the energy industry, but we're also energetic people. And uh, we think that um, insur- and we're very energized by the insurance industry and very excited to be building this new product for the solar energy industry. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, what's, what's, that what's the risk first that needs to be covered? Yes, we're addressing uh, financial risk in, so- in uh, commercial solar projects uh, related to the buyers of electricity, uh, of solar electricity. So if you are a business, you have uh, want solar on your roof, you usually uh, do that through long-term financing arrangements, loans, or leases. Um, but because these are 20-year contracts, uh, the banks and the lenders on these deals, um, they require a uh, Moody's or Standard & Poor's credit rating. Over 90% of the businesses in the U.S. and more around the world don't have that kind of credit rating. We essentially lend the rating of a, a large insurance company to the deal so that the bank can look at that rating and the off-taker can get the solar, uh, the buyer, at, at affordable prices. My guess is that business is probably gangbusters. Businesses are probably gangbusters. Yeah, they're they're uh, they're loving this. Um, they, them, the the whole uh, solar industry. This is one of the biggest problems, and so we've been getting great customer feedback, um, uh, strong interest from the banks on solving this problem. They can't do it internally due to regulations, so they would love to expand their market as well. So everybody's been very receptive about this product. What triggers a claim? Um, a claim is triggered by an off-taker default. So the in, in, in solar parlance, the off-taker is the buyer of electricity. So if if they stop paying for the uh, on this long-term contract, that triggers a claim. We will cover a portion of the uh, electric electricity contract payments that were scheduled, uh, up to a, a maximum limit, which is depends on each deal. Okay. So, uh, how difficult would it be to then transition over to covering solar panels and things of that nature, like property insurance yeah. for? Um, so. We're purely. Our goal is to come up with new products and innovate, or innovate on existing products. We're not looking to just repeat, take an admitted policy form, and just compete on price or marketing. Uh, we want to be a lean team that's really focused on innovate, innovation. So, to the extent that we see that uh, uh, we could. Uh, uh, change or innovate in a property policy or a casualty policy, we would do that. We do have uh, a backlog of several new po- other policies that address specific risks in the solar or other energy sectors, and we will be uh, launching those over the next uh, year or two as well. Yeah, so I was going to ask, energetic energy, so that means you're going beyond solar, you've probably got the same problem in other areas as well. 
Yeah, so uh, beyond solar, there's uh, batter uh, batteries. Uh, energy storage is becoming a big thing. We've all heard of the Tesla Powerwall. Pretty soon, they're going to be uh, those and other batteries are going to be uh, everywhere. How, how much do those go for? I think they're like $2,500. I think. Um, but they're, they're, you know, uh, the batteries, battery costs, as with um, solar panels, as with semiconductors, as with lots of all new technologies, are, are dry, coming down very quickly in price. Uh, and over the next couple of years, you should see batteries becoming more ubiquitous. There's other technologies that we're looking at as well, fuel cells, wind. Uh, we think this product, uh, the, the problem solution fit, the product market fit, uh, works in other industries uh, as well. So where are you based out of and how long, have, how long has Energetic been going? We've been at it for about a year and a half, and we're based out of Boston. And you're going to be on the podcast at some point in the near future. I'm very excited about it. Uh, we're going to be, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're buckled down, launching our first policies, getting that ironed out. And I'm really excited to tell you all about exactly how, how we've launched, how it's working, and uh, even what our future plans are as well. And I'm the first person on the list. You're the first person on the list by sure, yes. Good. Exclusive Get that. Uh, that's, that's the right answer. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm with the man, Abel Travis, my my nearest, dearest competitor in the insured podcast world. Abel, hello. Hey, how are you, Nick? Good to good to be with you. So we're in SureTech Rising in Boston, and uh, how did you what did you think of the conference so far? I think the conference is going pretty well so far. You know, there's a lot of uh, of individuals from just across the spectrum that that's talking about some new concepts and new things in regards to um, innovation uh, in in this industry and transformation of this industry. So, you know, I, I think day one ended really well, and you couldn't have asked for you know a, a, a better day with better topics. And, and of course, with me being out there as well, you know, uh, you know, you couldn't couldn't have asked for a better ending to the day. Well, speaking speaking of innovation. I'm not sure how many of my listeners know. Well, they, they most of them will know that I've interviewed you, and most of them probably know that you do a podcast. But uh, you have news. Uh, it's not like you're breaking it here, but uh, you have a new role. I do, um, and, and thanks for asking me that. So I am um, now the head of innovation at AF Group. Uh, so what I'm going to be doing at AF Group, or, or I've already started there, is I'm looking for new opportunities uh, to innovate and transform the organization. So really trying to hone in on what the uh, the, the three areas of innovation are that we're going to be focusing on. So first and foremost, it's uh, product innovation business model innovation and then figuring out also what the growth strategies are um, going to be through leveraging innovation um, and creating a, a transformation strategy around that. So it's really exciting. You know, I'm, I'm going to be uh, uh, relocating out uh, to, to the Midwest. So it's, it's really different from being here um, on the East Coast. But, you know, uh, just with the, the value that AF Group is hoping to provide to the customers, it, it just it just made sense to take that approach. So, yeah, it's going to be cool. Yeah. So are there any particular lines of business? I know we talked about this earlier, but uh, anything you can inform the listeners on uh, innovation but for for what for what, what types of what types of products do they currently do and uh, and potentially what might they do in the future I, you know I think that's a great question so what I, what I tell people is that roughly about 85 plus uh, percent of the underwritten premium that they bring in is workers compensation now that's the the current space that we're in today what I what I tell people though is that the future of AF group um, is going to be looking at a broader strategy around what we can do from a multi-line perspective so you 
you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, we're going to look at things like the BOP because it's high commoditization and, and you know, there's there's not a lot of value, um, you know, as we start to, to look at the potential of driving into that line. But, you know, we can provide the same level of customer value as we start to look at the more highly specialized, low commoditized types of lines of business. So, you know, we um, while workers' compensation is our core today, um, we are going to be looking to diversify at some point beyond workers' comp to continue to provide value, or, you know, to the customers. You know, we, we just launched... Um, um, a, a commercial lines auto product in regards to the trucking business, which is a, a segment that, uh, that that's really challenging, you know, and those are the types of things that we're going to continue to try to innovate and provide value around. You, you just brought up two lines of business, which are probably uh, the, the most difficult, maybe, oh, yeah. okay. to be profitable, workers' comp, auto. So uh, you don't see a lot of tech innovation in there, although I, I've been reading a lot more about wearables in workers' comp, so you have your work cut out for you. Absolutely, you know, um, and, and I agree with the, you know, technology innovation and workers' compensation. So it, it, it's a highly regulated line of business, right? So it, it creates a challenge. So while there's the work cut out, I absolutely believe that there's opportunities to innovate that segment, um, and it, so especially around commercial auto as well. So I'm looking forward to being able to drive that innovation strategy for the organization. I think it's going to be fun. Okay. Well, best of luck in Michigan. I, uh, you're always welcome on the podcast. Let's uh, let's keep up to date. Let you let's know how you're doing. Absolutely. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. And yeah, you know, uh, you've been doing an excellent job with your with your podcast. And I just want to say thank you for providing this platform. It's been great. I'm with my really good friend. Uh, I forget what episode I interview on interviewed on. It was like Remember? yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it was. I think it's in the 30s. Yeah. Well, okay, so it's 31, episode 31. Brett Poliquin, uh, catastrophe modeling extraordinaire. Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> We're at the uh, InsureTech Rising in Boston. So, busy day. Very busy. You saw a lot. Any one or two things stand out? Yes, actually. Am I allowed to name companies? Okay. Rosie AI was of particular interest to me. Their technology in terms of uh, natural language processing and being able to just simply ask like simple structured questions that you would ask a friend and getting like legitimate responses from their clients or the people they represent, uh, I see direct impact to the market I serve. And that's a, a very, very much of interest to me to be able to uh, for those who are, are listening and don't know exactly what I support, I, I support the catastrophe bond market. And with any sort of structured finance product, there's a lot of documentation that supports that. To be able to have a bot, you know, sort of um, filter through all that documentation, make sense of it, and being able to talk to the bot. Yeah, well, there are, there are a lot of, like, common questions, right, that probably the bot can just handle. Oh, yeah. How many, how many bonds do I invest in that... How many bonds do I invest in that uh, cover named storms or hurricanes that are actually based on the determination of the National Hurricane Center versus uh, PCS or another reporting agency? You know, it's questions like that. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. Any other companies? Let's think. Or any other uh, panels or presentations that you saw that you found interesting? I, 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 heard the, I heard the underwriter's toolkit was one of the better ones. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Who, who moderated that? I can't remember. Um, oh, yeah, that was me. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Brave review. Yeah. I think it was the only one I saw that had standing ovation, actually. Uh, yes, it did. Standing ovation. Uh, I got, it was embarrassing, but I don't think anyone really judged me negatively for it. 
There was a couple panels back to back that I liked that were um, they were about the word innovation, which I always like kind of like kind of cringe a little bit when I hear it honestly because it, it feels very buzzwordy. They were treating it very tangibly. They they were the back to back panels were like how do you innovate and then where where are you doing it, and they were just like just treating it very much like business as usual like how do you actually convince people internally in your company to let you do this thing that could fail and like that's the right way to, to ask the question like how do you actually motivate people to, to try something new uh, how do you get people in a company to experiment that where well, your company isn't an experimental company to begin with how do you get them how do you convince people to make decisions to let you do that and not like fire you so that was extremely interesting to me uh, something I, I want to bring back to where I work. Yeah, that's uh, when I talked to some of the companies that are doing innovation, uh, the amount of effort that it took to get the thing up and running, how many checkoffs. The, the gentleman that we were talking to over there, Stacy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at InsureTech Hartford. Um, when he was on, I like the conversation that you guys were having when they asked him, like, how, so what's you know if someone wanted to innovate how do you do it and he's just like you just do it, just do it. like yeah. just someone make a decision just start doing it exactly. and so then the question is it's like okay how do we create the sandbox so that they can do it without being um, squashed by the rest of the company so yeah innovation the word innovation makes me cringe yeah. as well um, lunch was good lunch was good yeah it was good I, I I got a little bit of everything yeah it was uh, like a, a barbecue type inspired dish I believe it was briskets and pulled pork uh, I had a lot of, I tried to avoid the heavier stuff so I could stay awake for the afternoon panels this is one that I believe you uh, that you led that I needed to stay awake yeah when you go to conferences I get overwhelmed uh, especially like when there are panels that are overlapping so when you get when you start when you go to a conference how do you manage how you're going to attack it? That's an excellent question because I actually take it pretty seriously. I, I, could, I do, yeah. So I download the agenda. I figure out who's speaking. Um, I run it through uh, my boss to see if he agrees with my approach. So basically, like, you get some value from the conference presentations, right? Like, but a lot of the value is really coming from the networking opportunities and the one-on-one -on -one conversations. And how do you identify those people? And sometimes you don't know who's attending until like right before the event when they actually finally release the list of attendees. And so I scour that, figure out companies I know about, companies um, that I have existing relationships maybe with their colleagues, any sort of um, easy introduction to a conversation. And then I find them. Uh, if I'm lucky enough, if the conference is good tech and they have photos of people, like for instance this one had a, um, a mobile app that you could download and it, you could link, you could sign in through LinkedIn, so it immediately connects it to your photo. So I mean, you can stalk people like any other social networking tool. I could find like, oh yeah, I know exactly who that is. I go right up to them, like, hey, here I am. I know who you are. So the funny, the funniest this is because because they kind of know who you are. Uh, you'll be talking to someone, and then all of a sudden you see someone peeking around the corner to get a glimpse of your face or your badge to see if it's really you. Yeah, it sounds you up from, you, from like mid-belly, yes. your badges to your face. Yeah. I, I, one of the frustrating parts of conferences like this is, that, I don't know if you noticed, the badge hung down to your As people are walking around, what you see is eye contact, belly. Yep. Eye contact, belly. And when they walk away, you know that you're not the person for them. You're like, oh, okay. Oh. I'm not. I'm not important enough. They don't. They don't want to talk to me. So um, conferences. What's next for you? 
Next one for me, oh, that's a good question. So there's a Spring Jam coming up in Boston in Shirtech. Uh, it's run by Ask Kodiak. So I'll be attending that one. I've already signed up. Yeah, so what's what's funny for the listeners now, because nobody's here, but we're at an Ask Kodiak event, and there's nobody here. We're the last ones here. Yeah, Alan like walked up. He's like, hey, guys, I'm going to split. And he like left, and it kind of like left us. Like, okay, what do we do now? Okay, so uh, the InsureTech Jam. Yeah, I, I've attended their events in the past. They're very um, – they grow – they're – they're just not overly formal. Like it's it's loose, it's it's clean, it's simple. Like after work, so you don't have to lose a day of work. Yeah, and um, everyone's there for the right reasons. You just you're there to so you get to know people. Like it's not overly sponsored yet, and um, which I like. You know, it's kind of like um, you know, you're finding out about a band or or an artist before anyone else knows about it. You feel kind of you feel more emotionally connected to it and less responsible to attend because someone else told you to go. It's more like I just I want to go on behalf of myself. Hey, 1992. I saw. I think it was Whitlock Hall, University of Massachusetts at Lowell. Seriously. And I remember just like, oh, Pearl Jam. I've heard them on the radio. This was like right before they absolutely exploded. So I I like that as well. That's a good, really good analogy. That's incredible, actually. Yeah, Pearl Jam's. I've yet to see them, and I. I have no excuse. I, I have you know, Shame on you. I, thank you. I want that on record. I was with Brett Poliquin. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much.